In this episode, I'll be using outdated terminology that most of us would consider offensive today, and I'll be describing some disturbing theories and practices, so be forewarned. The fear of people of inferior intelligence, of inferior social capacity, that created in our country what we called the genetic scale. Eugenics was the idea that you could improve the human species by selectively mating people with specific desirable hereditary traits. It aimed to reduce human suffering by breeding out disease, disabilities and so-called undesirable characteristics from the human population. If we examine the pedigree of this family, we find that although the father and mother of the youngest generation are both normal, the father's brother was insane. Early supporters of eugenics believed people inherited mental illness, criminal tendencies and even poverty, and that these conditions could be bred out of the gene pool. British scholar Sir Francis Galton coined the term in 1883 in his book Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. Galton, whose cousin was Charles Darwin, hoped to better humankind through the propagation of the British elite. An example of favourable heredity is shown by the pedigree of the Phelps family, members of which have been boatmen on the Thames for generations. His plan never really took hold in his own country, but in America it was more widely embraced. Hi, I'm John Roach. I'm going to give you a rough history of disability. Attitudes to disability today are very much products of its history. If we want to understand current practices, stereotypes and infrastructure around disability, we have to revisit its past. Welcome to this Yarn mini-series. Disability, a parallel history. Episode 3, Darkest Before the Dawn Eugenics made its first official appearance in American history through marriage laws. In 1896, Connecticut made it illegal for people with epilepsy, or who were feeble-minded, to marry. In 1903, the American Breeders Association was created to study eugenics and national conferences on eugenics were held in 1914, 1915 and 1928. It's hard to imagine how effective this was, but this idea was spread through the world at an alarming rate. Here's Professor Bob Jackson again. We had in all, all Western societies these eugenic societies going up for the science of better breeding and they would have best bred baby competitions where parents would bring their babies up to show that my baby is a very well-bred baby and um, they would win a prize if their baby was determined to be the best-bred baby. As the concept of eugenics took hold, famous personalities, scientists and leaders championed the goals. John Harvey Kellogg of Kellogg cereal fame, the cornflakes guy, was a big proponent of eugenics. He organised the Race Betterment Foundation in 1911 and established a pedigree register. Such stories as H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds have challenged mankind. So today, man is... H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, 
stated that he worried defectives would outbreed the rest. Is this the human race of the future? Or is this the Morlocks, fiendish creatures who live in a weird underground world? Some of Wells' science fiction works reflect his thoughts about the degeneration of humanity. In 1904, he discussed a paper by Francis Galton, saying, It is in the sterilization of failure that the possibility of an improvement of the human stock lies. Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone. I told you he'd be back. Bell's second chief interest, besides oralism, as we discovered in the previous episode, was the study of hereditary and animal breeding. He became an early supporter of the eugenics movement to improve human breeding. He thought that deafness was hereditary, even though his wife and his mother both developed hearing impairments after illnesses. He warned that boarding schools for the deaf could become breeding centres for deafness. In 1884, Bell published a paper called Upon the Formation of a Deaf Variety of the Human Race, in which he warns of a great calamity facing the nation. Deaf people are forming clubs, socialising with one another, and consequently marrying other deaf people. The creation of a deaf race that yearly would grow larger and more insular is underway. Some eugenists called for legislation outlawing intermarriage by deaf people, but Bell rejected such a ban as impractical. Instead, he proposed the following steps. 1. Determine the causes that promote intermarriages among the deaf and dumb, and 2. Remove them. His views on immigration, deaf education and eugenics overlapped and intertwined. He wanted to stop the immigration into the United States of what he termed undesirable ethnical elements, calling for legislation to prevent their entry in order to encourage the evolution of a higher and nobler type of man in America. And who do you think said this? The unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes constitutes a national and race danger. I feel that the source from which the stream of madness is fed should be cut off and sealed up before another year has passed. (coughs) Winston Churchill said that in 1910. There is no place in heaven for you. While we're on Churchill, let's jump over to the UK for a minute. In 1913, the passing of the Mental Incapacity Act led to around 40,000 men and women being locked away, having been deemed feeble-minded or morally defective. In the 1920s, teeth and tonsils were often extracted from people with mental health problems in Britain because it was thought these parts of the body might harbour infections, which could generate mental impairments. Some British psychiatric patients were even given malaria to see if it would cure their mental illness. Rural colonies were also established for the so-called mentally deficient. The colonies were self-contained small worlds in which disabled people were isolated from the outside world. In a typical colony, 900 to 1500 people lived in detached so-called villas with up to 60 people in each. It was thought essential to separate the sexes, so a central administrative block always formed a barrier between the male and female villas. In all of them, patients slept in multiple rows in large dormitories. There were special villas for difficult cases and for the lowest grade idiots. There's that word again. 
These villas were as far away as possible from the entrances to the hospital to avoid offending visitors. The idiots didn't work, they stayed in their villas, but as these had verandas, they could be out in the fresh air, even in bad weather. These colonies, like the old asylums, became dumping grounds for any kind of people who had fallen on hardship, and not even mentally ill. This is John. He was sent to a colony in 1920. I was moved to Stoke Park. I didn't know where it was going. Stoke Park Colony for Mental Defectives was a hundred miles away near Bristol. John was not mentally ill. He'd lost his family. He was 12. What a great big dormitory it was. They'll be your bed. And it was big old in the bloody blankets. Oh, I said, I want a better blanket. I was only 12. I said, OK, I'll make the best of it. In 12 years at Stoke Park, John had no visitors. Villas housing the better class of working patients were expected to work every day and help care for the more severely disabled residents. Now, some of them were deaf and dumb, some were blind, some were blind. Uh, some couldn't feed themselves, some couldn't feed themselves. You had to wipe them down, or get somebody to do Staff wouldn't do it, they were too damn lazy, staff. From the outside, with their separate villas and main building blocks, it might have looked like the growing number of holiday camps that were becoming popular at the time. Holiday camps were a popular choice for a family holiday. But this was far from the community living that the colony administrators had promised. For a week they had their own chalet in the model village. At the same time in America, separate facilities were being built across the country solely to protect society from feeble-minded women of childbearing age. One evil girl may corrupt a whole village. That's the most per dangerous person uh, in society. At this time, Hollywood was entering its golden age, so eugenics went to the movies too. Two feature films produced during this era illustrate the cruelty at the heart of the genetic scare, but they also give us a sense of what the general view of eugenics was at the time. Both films I'll mention are meant to be moral tales for couples hoping to start a family. The first is a silent film produced in 1917 called The Black Stork. In the lead role of physician, his profession in real life as well, Dr. Harry Hazelton and a deformed baby. The film is based on an actual eugenic infanticide of the child John Bollinger by Dr. Hazelden in 1917. The doctor convinced the child's parents that their deformed baby would have grown up to be a miserable outcast and that death was the child's best option, as well as in the best interest of society. A coroner's jury determined that the child was brain damaged and therefore defective. Dr. Hazelden was ultimately acquitted by the jury for allowing John Bollinger to die. The doctor was an outspoken supporter of the eugenics movement prior to this case, and after the publicity made him famous, he brought eugenics to movie audiences. The climactic scene. Hazelden refuses the child a warming blanket. He looks at the nurse beside him and the title card reads, there are times when saving a life is a greater crime than taking one. The closing title card of the film lays out its message clearly. For the salvation of our race and the health and happiness of every individual, we must stop at its source, the pollution of the bloodstream of the nation 
by passing sane eugenics laws that would prevent marriage among the unfit. The film was re-released in 1927 under the title Are You Fit to Marry? Several states issued laws preventing marriage among the unfit in an attempt to stop these people from procreating. 33 states would go even further by allowing involuntary sterilisation in whomever lawmakers deemed unworthy to procreate. From 1909 to 1979, around 20,000 sterilisations occurred in the state of California under the guise of protecting society from the offspring of people with mental illness. In 1927, the US Supreme Court ruled that forced sterilisation of the handicapped does not violate the US Constitution. The words in the ruling of Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes were used in a 1937 film called Tomorrow's Children. Your Honor, I... I'm sorry, Doctor. Three generations of unfit are enough. Petition not allowed. At the start, the film seems to be critical of eugenics policies. Sterilization must be abolished from the statutes of this country. The story follows Alice Mason, who wants to settle down with her fiancé, Jim, and raise a family. Can't you just see me and you in a nice little flat, all fixed up pretty with a couple of kids under our feet? Kids? Yeah, that would be grand. This goal crumbles when her parents are forced to undergo sterilization or lose their welfare checks. you know anything about her family background? Oh, yes, Your Honor, I do. There are several other children, aren't there? Yes. What is their condition? Alice's ageing parents are lazy alcoholics, and all her siblings have disabilities or criminal ties. One is a cripple, two others might be classed as feeble-minded. Isn't the oldest son in jail? Oh, yes, I believe so. And knowing all that, you still contend that this girl should be allowed to bring more people like that into the world? She is told that she too must be sterilised, as her family's corrupt bloodline must end. Alice's parents grudgingly accept the court order, so they can keep their welfare. Alice and her fiancé make an emotional case against her sterilisation. She's not like the rest of the family. She's a good girl, Judge. I'm sorry, young Oh, man. no, wait, please. Please listen to me. Don't you understand what you're doing? Look at me. Can't you see that I'm well and strong? And I'll be a good mother to judge. Honest, I will. But it doesn't change the court's decision. Who gave them the authority to tell me that I can't bring life into the world? Only God has that right. It's later uncovered by a priest that Alice was actually an abandoned infant the Masons took in. So she actually isn't of their blood. Well, it's Alice and my daughter. Then whose daughter is she? It's the drink, Father. Are you telling us the truth, Mrs. Mason? Sure, I'm telling the truth. She ain't my daughter. The film's climax sees the priest racing against the clock to stop Dr. Brooks from sterilizing Alice. What's the meaning of this? Don't you know that there's a trial in progress? Yes, Your Honor, but there's a, there's a desperate situation that needs your immediate attention. What is it, Father? It's that girl, Alice Mason. Mason? Oh, yes, I heard her case yesterday. She's at the hospital now, about to be operated on. We've got to stop it. On what grounds? The mother's confessed that she's a foster child. No relation whatsoever. Are you sure of this? I heard it myself, Your Honor. You must telephone the hospital. I should have the mother's statement here before I take action. But, of course, your word... You have it, Judge. You have my word. Get me Dr. McIntosh at the county hospital. They get through to the doctor in the nick of time and are able to stop the procedure. Were we in time, sir? You were. Thank God. I told you to have faith, my son. So the moral of the story was, sterilisation is okay, 
but make sure you don't sterilize good people by mistake. But that's okay, because God won't let that happen. AKA, priests are heroes. Some people did object to the movie though. The state censor board banned its first release in most states, but maybe not for the reason you might think. Tomorrow's Children broke industry standards because it depicted alcoholism and deformed children, so not directly for its eugenics message, which they must have been fine with. In 1942, the Supreme Court ruling on forced sterilisation was overturned, but not before thousands of people underwent the procedure, and many individual states continued the practice for years. It's not surprising against this backdrop of intolerance and aggression towards the disabled that if you had a disability and you could get away with hiding it, then you would, right? Members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives. The President of the United States at the time was disabled. But if anyone knew this, that would mean the end of his political career. Or so he presumed, anyway. A date which will live in infamy. President Franklin Roosevelt's legs were paralysed from polio, but the public never saw his disability. Out of 35,000 photographs of President Roosevelt in his library, only two show him seated in a wheelchair, and the leg braces he wore are very hard to spot in any of the pictures. They had the braces painted black, uh, even though they were shiny steel. Biographer Hugh Gallagher. Uh, He wore black shoes, black socks, black trousers, black trousers cut long. Uh, so that the braces all but disappeared if you weren't looking closely. He also developed an elaborate method of getting around by having his assistants hold him in a way that made him appear to be walking. Most of the pictures you see of him, he's either standing up and if you look carefully, he's holding on to somebody's arm. Journalist Chambers Roberts. This was not exactly a conspiracy, but it was a conspiracy of consent between photographers and the White House. Something that could never exist today. There's now a famous story that when Orson Welles was dining in the White House, President Roosevelt said to him, you and I are the two finest actors in America. Of course, the fact that Roosevelt could rise up to such a position while being disabled has a lot to do with his privilege as a wealthy white man. As horrific as the intolerance, aggression, forced sterilization and segregation was in America. Adolf Hitler's administration brought the treatment of disabled people and eugenics to a whole new low. When after a detailed review of Nazi achievements, Hitler cries, my life's fight has not been in vain. Eugenics was already popular in Germany before Hitler. Hitler didn't come up with the concept of a superior Aryan race on his own. He referred to American eugenics in his 1934 book Mein Kampf. By 1940, Hitler's master race mania took a terrible turn as hundreds of thousands of Germans with mental and physical disabilities were euthanized as explained by Professor Bob Jackson. Uh, Overall, about 250,000 people were disinfected, because that was the terminology used, disinfected, in other words, they were killed off. The gas chambers were designed by German doctors to kill off people with disabilities to get the most efficient way of killing off people with disabilities. And then they were used on the Jews. After the unspeakable atrocities of Hitler and the Nazis became widely known and condemned, 
Eugenics quickly lost momentum in America and everywhere else after World War II, although forced sterilizations did still happen. The impact of war in the story of disability can't be overstated. Wars literally make disabled people, and they do it in huge numbers. When a war ends, it forces society to confront disability head on. Where once disabled people weren't so visible, after a war, a community will be inundated with veterans returning home with life-changing injuries, disabilities, physical and mental. An estimated 20 million people became disabled by the end of World War I. In the UK alone, around 2 million came home with some level of disability. Over 40,000 were amputees, some had facial disfigurement or had been blinded. Others suffered from deafness, tuberculosis or lung damage caused by poison gas. Nobody knew it was mustard gas. Nobody knew it was gas at all. They thought they were just being shelled, you know, like an ordinary uh, burridge. Walter Clark recalls. But what happened, these shells, when they burst, it drop all on the floor, liquid. And in the morning, as the mist, there's always a mist there every morning, that was coming into the air and you were breathing it all in. And nobody knew until one or two chaps started being sick. And uh, a lot of the uh, fellows were laying about, going blind and sores all over their eyes. And then they realised what it was. There were thousands of cases of shell shock diagnosed today as post-traumatic stress disorder. What happened was everybody had shell shock who went through that sort of thing. But it manifested itself in different ways. This is Bertram Stewart. One of my friends who went out there, when he came back after the war, he, um, he was um, accustomed to shut himself up in his home or in his garden and, uh, and he wouldn't come out at all and nobody could get him to. He, and he finished up, he finished up in a lunatic asylum. The return of disabled people to the UK after the First World War caused some attitudes to change. These people were heroes who would sacrifice their bodies for the nation, so they had to be cared for. There were major advances in plastic surgery and prosthetics. Ex-servicemen with physical and mental damage were treated with new exercise and fitness approaches. Employers were urged to take on disabled workers, and at the same time, sheltered employment workplaces sprang up including the British Legion Poppy Factory in South London. November the 11th comes round again, and with it the memory of that other war which left so many broken hearts and limbs in its trail. The British Legion has looked after the veterans and the victims of that war, and one of its chief sources of income has been the sale of poppies made in its factory at Richmond by disabled men. It has also undertaken to care for the soldiers, sailors and airmen of this war. Give doubly for the victims of two wars that are essentially one. After World War II, in England, public concern once again shifted to the 300,000 ex-servicemen and women, and this time civilians, who had been left disabled by the war. Changes in the treatment of disabled people, spurned on by a patriotic sympathy for disabled servicemen and women, also greatly benefited disabled civilians. The 1944 Disability Employment Act promised sheltered employment, reserved occupations and employment quotas for disabled people. On July 5th, the new National Health Service starts providing hospital and specialist services. Have you chosen your family doctor? The new National Health Service extended rehabilitation services to workers disabled by industrial accidents. Carriage or transporter? Well, what's in a net? In 1946, 
the Invercarra Company was founded. That it's designed to enable a man who has spent the last 25 years in a spinal jacket to live an active life. You would like to know his name? Well, meet Mr. Sidney Jones, director of a live building firm at Stoke-on-Trent. Windscreen, mirrors, well, you've seen all the fittings. They're details. He's free now to cruise within a range of 60 miles of his home. A man to whom a physical handicap is just an obstruction to be bypassed. The company went on to win a government contract to supply transport for physically impaired people throughout the 1950s and 60s. This then is the outlook of a man who refuses to be beaten. His carriage is powered by a petrol electric unit which charges its own batteries. Its driver, a man who just won't run down. After two world wars, the end of each highlighted and humanised people with disabilities. But the question of how to treat infants and children born with disabilities was still being debated. In America, public health nurses would assess young children in their homes and refer them to doctors. When a five-year-old fails to work a two-year level puzzle, it may indicate retardation. This clip is from an instructional video for public nurses. On the other hand, a mother may claim that her child is a behavior problem and try to hide the fact that he's slow or emotionally disturbed. In either case, as in all such situations, your first step is to call the case to medical attention. This case finding is one of a nurse's biggest jobs where mental retardation is concerned. Doctors continue to urge parents to place their children in institutions regardless of the conditions. Institutions began admitting younger children with more severe disabilities. During the post-war baby boom in America, having a handicapped child was seen as a burden to the family. Facing the painful choice between financial hardship and social isolation. Eunice Kennedy Shriver. Or banishing a child to the back wards of an institution. Rid yourself, parents were told, of the terrible burden and the heartache. More and more children were institutionalized, and not just children from poor families. Frustrated and angry over poor living conditions and a lack of community services, parents began to organise and demand better services for their sons and daughters. These organised groups started off small, meeting in neighbours' living rooms. Like millions of other unfortunate Americans, I am the parent of a mentally retarded child. This is a promotional video for NARC, the National Association of Retarded Children. In this county, we have no special classes, no nursery schools, no community or child guidance centres to give our children what parents of every normal child take for granted. They later changed their name to ARC for some reason. If you have such a child yourself or are interested in this problem, you're welcome to attend a meeting at 8 o'clock Thursday evening at the home of Mrs. John Wheeler. The efforts of a few groups of parents scattered across the United States led to a strong national movement of parents who declared that the retarded can be helped. The parents' movement had begun. We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men... In the 1960s, a parallel struggle, the civil rights movement, also inspired disabled groups to take direct action against discrimination, poor access and inequality. After years of treating people with disabilities with guilt and shame, 
people began to speak about their family members with disabilities. President Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, had a mental disability. Rosemary lived with her family until she was in her 20s and enjoyed the same lifestyle as her brothers and sister. Like most families during this time, the Kennedys did not openly discuss having a sibling with a mental disability. But by 1962, however, this changed. The parents' movement had effectively brought disabilities out into the open. Eunice Kennedy Shriver wrote an article about her sister Rosemary and the adjustments that the family had made. The article appeared in the Saturday Evening Post and was read by millions of people. This might have also prompted Eunice and Rosemary's brother, President Kennedy, to speak up about mental disability in public. You know today in the United States that 3% of the children grow up mentally retarded? Do you imagine that 2% of our children live in mental retardation who could be saved if we had the program and the recognition of the need? And those of us who have seen children live in the shadows know that a country as rich as ours can't possibly justify this neglect. President Kennedy went on to roll out several actions that benefited disabled people. I have today announced uh, my intention to appoint a panel of outstanding scientists, doctors and others. By others, I think he means parents. To prescribe a program of action in the field of mental retardation. Eunice went on to found the Special Olympics, an international sporting event, primarily for people with intellectual disability. In ancient Rome, the gladiators went into the arena with these words on their lips. Let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. Eunice wanted to show what people who are often written off can do instead of focusing on what they can't do. Today, all of you young athletes are in the arena. Here she is opening the first Special Olympic Games in 1968. Many of you will win, but even more important, I know you will be brave and bring credit to your parents and to your country. Let us begin the Olympics. Thank you. The first time the Special Olympics was held outside America was in 2003, when it was held in my home country, Ireland. Good evening. After years of preparation, the opening ceremony for the 2003 Special Olympics began this evening in Croke Park. Tens of thousands of spectators crowded into the stadium to watch the event, which is also being shown live around the world. I was in secondary school at the time. I distinctly remember watching the glitzy, star-studded opening ceremony that included uh, Muhammad Ali, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bono and Nelson Mandela. I regard myself immensely privileged to be at this occasion tonight. The Special Olympics give telling testimony to the indestructibility of the human spirit. But in my opinion, the most significant aspect of the event was the host town program. The 7,000 athletes, 2,000 coaches and staff from 158 countries were put up in accommodation spreading across the whole of the island of Ireland. Each country's team was hosted by a town or village. 170 cities, towns and villages participated. The largest travelling delegation, the US, stayed in Belfast. Portugal went to the Iron Islands. Tajikistan took up residence in the village of Abifil. Turkmenistan stayed in the village of Bruff. Palace Green, a tiny village in Limerick with a population of 500, hosted Kyrgyzstan and my hometown Kilkenny hosted the German delegation. 
I remember a large group of us went down to the town centre for the team's welcoming ceremony. Events like this, some larger, some smaller, were repeated all over the country in host towns. Most of the delegations stayed in hotels, but in smaller villages delegations were put up in, in B&Bs or taken in by local families in their own homes. So the Special Olympics got to touch way more Irish people and they felt way more involved and invested in the event than if the athletes all stayed in a centralised location. It reminds me a bit of the spirit of Giel, the birthplace of community care. During the Special Olympics in Ireland, people with disabilities were integrated into the communities. It's the total antithesis of how people with disabilities were treated for years, shipped off, segregated and isolated far from the rest of the community. Unfortunately, in the 1960s, that was still the case, especially in America with its massive institutions. John F. Kennedy's words had raised awareness of the issue, but unfortunately had done little to change the reality. After President Kennedy was killed, his brother Robert took up the mantle and started campaigning for disabled people. In 1965, Senator Robert Kennedy, accompanied by a television crew, toured the Willowbrook State School in New York and described what he saw during the visit. And I think uh, particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that borders on uh, a snake pit and that the children live in filth, uh, that uh, many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because lack of attention, lack of imagination, lack of uh, adequate manpower. There's very little future for the children or for those who are in these institutions. Uh, both need uh, a tremendous overhauling. I'm not saying that those who, who are the attendants there or the ones that run the institution are at fault. I think all of us are at fault. And uh, I think it's just uh, it's long overdue that something be done about it. In 1966, Burton Blatt, a professor at Syracuse University, and Fred Kaplan echoed Senator Kennedy's attack on institutions with their photographic essay entitled Christmas in Purgatory. Using a hidden camera, Blatt and Kaplan captured life inside the public institutions. The photos they took are shocking, and not for the faint-hearted. The crumbling walls, rusting or broken fixtures, dirty floors, rooms with broken beds with no blankets, babies abandoned in cribs, children self-harming with open wounds, adult patients walking around naked, clearly malnourished. It looked more like photos of concentration camps rather than care facilities. The following year, their essay was published in Look magazine and received a shocked reader response. In the accompanying essay, Dr. Blatt declared that there is hell on earth and in America there is a special inferno, the institution. Dissatisfaction grew as reporting made clear that the institutions were failing to meet even the most basic needs of people they were intended to serve. But the exposés of the 1960s were pretty much just forgotten until the next decade. In 1972, ABC News visited the Willowbrook State School on Staten Island in New York the same facility visited by Robert Kennedy in 1965. It's been more than six years since Robert Kennedy walked out of one of the wards here at Willowbrook and told newsmen of the horror he'd seen inside. But that was way back in 1965 and somehow we'd all forgotten. The programme Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, aired on network TV 
and was seen by millions of viewers. There was one attendant for perhaps 50 severely and profoundly retarded children. Lying on the floor naked and smeared with their own feces, they were making a pitiful sound, a kind of mournful wail that it's impossible for me to forget. On the program, a former doctor at the institution reported that conditions had only become worse since the 1960s. Uh, yes, there are 5,300 patients at Willowbrook, which is the largest institution for the mentally retarded in the world. Uh, the ones that we saw were the most uh, severely and profoundly retarded. There are thousands there like that, uh, not going to school, sitting on the ward all day, not being talked to by anyone, only one or two or three people to take care of 70 people on the ward, sharing the same toilet, contracting the same diseases. 100% of patients at Willowbrook uh, contract hepatitis within six uh, months of being in the institution. The institution was chronically understaffed and underfunded. Why are these, why are these uh, patients unclothed? We don't have enough clothing. We don't have the proper help to keep clothing on them. We have a few nudists that will not keep clothes on. They will pull them off. But most of all, we don't have the help to keep the kids properly dressed. The exposures of the horrifying realities of the institutions prompted advocates to sue state governments on the grounds that their confinement and treatment of residents was unconstitutional. Finally, many US states decided to close their institutions down and settle the lawsuits against them by agreeing to detailed court-monitored plans to shift residents to smaller facilities in their own communities. And we're going to talk exactly about what your plans are, where you're going to live, and the types of things that you're going to do, and the places that you'll need to have going in the community and just about what it's going to be like here, because you know that we're, we're closing. The Laconia State School is going to be closing, and you're moving out. In 1975, when a new federal law required that all children with disabilities be provided a public education, the populations as institutions began to plummet. Now that they could send their children to school, parents brought their kids home. We don't want any more institutions. We have enough of that stuff. If the state wants to give people with disabilities their freedom, then at the same time, it has to provide opportunities. And I know the challenges that face a person with a disability are great. And just because the institution has closed doesn't mean those challenges will go away. We've seen how for most of our history, people with disabilities were segregated as a means to care for and control them. In the 1970s, the concept of independent living developed. It was the opposite to institutions. It's a move away from dependency on parents or professionals. Essentially, independent living means the opportunity to make decisions that affect one's own life, and being able to pursue activities for one's own choosing. Independent living doesn't necessarily mean living alone. It more has to do with self-determination, making choices and having access to appropriate services. Think about your own life. If you, if you have people taking care of you, making all your decisions, what is there to life, really? Here's Ed Roberts, who most would consider the father of the independent living movement. And almost all the social programs we set up take care of us or put us away in institutions to be cared for. 
And I think once I began to discover that, how important it is to, to help yourself and to move on from that and to go beyond what people thought my limits were. Unfortunately, barriers still exist for most people with disabilities. Barriers to employment, public transportation, social and recreational activities, and many other aspects of everyday life. Some barriers are obvious, like an unramped entrance to a building, uh, the lack of interpreters or captions for a person with hearing loss, or the lack of brailled or recorded copies of printed materials for people who are blind. Other barriers are less obvious, but frequently more damaging. Stereotypes play a big part in hindering people with disabilities. Stereotypes that depict people with disabilities as objects of pity or scorn result in low expectations of what people with disabilities can achieve. For many people with disabilities, the message was to overcome rather than accept a disability. The model of heroic adjustment, triumph over adversity. I mean, we all love those Disney-style stories. So people with disabilities had the option of being pitied, or the other extreme, of being heroes who overcame their disability entirely or achieved something in spite of their disability. Take President Roosevelt, for example. It was only after he died that the general population learned of his disability. Since then, he's often cited as someone who overcame his disability to achieve great things. But it seems like the biggest obstacle he had to overcome was the public's perception of his disability not the disability itself. And by hiding his disability, he was only perpetuating the stereotype that people with disabilities are weak. The point is, attitudes don't change overnight. It takes time. Now the key issue here is that this is deeply embedded. But here's a final warning from Professor Robert Jackson. This is an amazing change. If you think about the last 70 years, to go from massive killing to children sharing classrooms, that's a massive change, but we've got to compare that to thousands and thousands of years of segregation and killing to sort of say this is probably very tentative and can be very easily lost. It also helps to explain why so many things are so hard. Why is it so hard to just get your child in a regular school? Why is it so hard to get a reasonable bit of service or a bit of help when you've got a child with a disability? Much of this is deeply unconscious and really built into the whole society. To finish where we started with the Paralympics, the Paralympic Games in London in 2012 was a huge leap forward for how people with disabilities were perceived by the general public. London 2012 had a cumulative audience of 38 billion and was broadcast to 115 countries and territories. The Paralympic Games has set new records every day. Sporting records, records for crowds, for television audiences, for unbridled spirit. In this country, we will never think of sport the same way and we will never think of disability the same way. Channel 4, the official British broadcaster, dedicated more airtime to the games than any other broadcaster. And they also made space for new TV presenters and commentators with disabilities. A lot of which stayed on television long after the games ended. That was all great stuff. Advertising and television coverage broke down the stereotype that people with disabilities were helpless. Instead, they were depicted as tough, 
strong, athletic. Channel 4 rolled out a huge glossy ad campaign. Tough para-athletes took centre stage. And the ads focused on the more high-impact, violent sports. The tagline announced, Meet the Superhumans. My only question about this is why are they superhuman? Is it because they're elite athletes? So all athletes are superhuman. Is it because their high-tech prosthetics appear to enhance their abilities? Is it because they're not just athletes, but they've also overcome adversity? It's a thin line to draw between appreciation and the old hero stereotype. My point really is that calling people heroes or praising them for overcoming an obstacle doesn't help them. He's represented the school of distinction on many occasions. I remember when I was a kid at my able-bodied or typical primary school, when I finished in that school, as in graduated, I was called up and presented with a special award at the final year assembly. It was called the Brave Warrior Award. The idea being that I was given this award for overcoming adversity during my time at the school. And while it was very well intentioned, it, it just embarrassed me. Why go to the trouble of giving someone an award for overcoming an obstacle? Why not just work to remove the obstacle in the first place? Surely that does more good. Anyway, we finally arrived at the present from our trip through the history of disability. It's a struggle that's been going on in parallel with other struggles throughout history. It's been a long and slow journey, and as we've seen, sometimes it was two steps forward, one step back, and things could easily slip back again if we're not careful. What I've realized is that it hasn't just been a journey of acceptance and empathy, but ultimately, it's about self-determination. Having control over your own life, that's something that was denied to disabled people for centuries. From ancient times, where disabled people were exposed and vilified, they were being controlled by superstition. Then disabled people were put in asylums controlled by religious orders. These morphed into institutions controlled by the state and forced custodial care run by professionals. Finally, parents had enough and spoke up for their children, demanding they be allowed to join the rest of the community again. And now, disabled people are speaking for themselves. They are the experts in charge of their own care and their own lives. And it only took a couple of thousand years. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com Written and ranted by John Roach Research for this episode came from so many different sources, too many to mention here, so I'll put links to them all in the episode description. 
you made it this far, you deserve an award.